Hi, welcome to the Cracking Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Anna, editor at TICE, and this week we are talking about cyber resiliency. What does it take to build a cyber resilient organization? What's the best way to educate staff? Is a revolution needed, or can cyber resiliency evolve over time? What does cyber resiliency even mean? We'll tackle these questions and more with our expert guest, Director of Security at UK Payments, Craig Rice. Remember, I'll dish out our cyber tip of the week at the end of the podcast. But for now, here is Craig in response to my question, why are traditional security tactics failing business leaders? That is the million dollar question, isn't it? And I, I think the three sort of categories when we talk about cybersecurity, IT security, uh, information security are always uh, people, process and technology. But as one of my colleagues remarked recently, it's kind of process, people and technology. And I think there's a tendency to reach for a technological solution when uh, methodologies and sound process protocols and procedures are really at the root of uh, resiliency. Uh, There's a sort of sustainable, repeatable, maintainable uh, policies and procedures that allow you to be effective across an organisation. And arguably... Operating in a silo of cybersecurity, information security doesn't achieve that. You've got to be much more integrated with the business, enabling the business to do what it exists to do and making sure you've got buy-in at all levels across an enterprise to make it work. I mean, if you're, if you're going in as the thought police trying to impose your will on people who have got a very busy day job, I don't think you're ever going to uh, achieve what you need across an organisation. So for me, I guess cyber resilience is... is much more organic than it might first appear it's almost like a muscle memory you know in the same way you get in a car and put your seatbelt on uh, perhaps we're looking for the same reaction in our users in the same way they get a suspicious email they right click on the address and find the properties underneath the address not just take it at red and then they press the red button on their outlook to make sure it's sent off to to be examined by it and cleared before they action it so i think the sort of socio-technical interface which I know NCSC and the RISC, the Research Institute for the Science of Cybersecurity are focusing on, is a real area of development and I know a lot of my fellow professionals put an awful lot of time and effort in making sure they can deliver persuasive and compelling messages that are easily understood. I think the analogy for me is in my car, I know where the driver sits and the petrol goes but nobody would expect me to do an electronic diagnostic on my car to make it work in the mornings. Why would I expect a user to be able to to do anything other than the basics to drive their PC or their personal electronic device? So how would you define cyber resiliency? I think cyber resilience is a really interesting question because cyber resilience probably means something now very different to what it did when cyber was first used, you know, five or six years ago, when it replaced very controversially the term IT security or information security. Uh, and I think we should remember that information security is arguably the second oldest profession in the world. It's spying and counter-spying. So cyber in this context, uh, for me, I always think of cyber as being the governing hand or the hand on the tiller. Uh, and resilience is the ability to operate in adverse conditions. So for a digital enterprise, what is the demarcation between cyber resilience and operational resilience? If I'm completely online in my business, albeit I have a physical presence in an office block... Do I really mind if, you know, I lose some of my air conditioning? Well, from health and safety reasons, I might. But what I really worry about is losing those core electronic processes that drive my business, that generate revenue, that provide essential services. 
And I think you can see from the tone of the legislation uh, coming out at the moment, both from Europe and in the UK, and the NIST directive is a good example of that, uh, you're seeing people realise that digital societies are, are powered by disparate individual corporate systems that are all interlinked and interdependent, uh, which the World Economic Forum refers to as hyperconnectivity. In an age of hyperconnectivity, it becomes the system as a whole rather than any component of it that, that is a, a real issue, and that's a much more complex problem to solve than simply adopting a sort of castle walls approach to cybersecurity. So for me, it's much more about operational resilience, end-to-end operational resilience, and considering the process, people, and technology, probably in that order, I would say. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned the, the, the importance of process. How would you go about building a strategy to be cyber-resilient? So there is there is a sort of a bit of a mantra that uh, templated solutions are good for templated actors, and I think we must recognise that compliance is not secure, uh, and going beyond compliance is is a fundamental aspiration of a, a truly cyber resilient program. That said, there there is a role for standards and frameworks because they are uh, the rigour and process to what would otherwise be, you know, individual initiatives, which let's be honest are fueled by personal experience. So there's two aspects to that. There's the, the fact that the, the framework or standard is the start point and the fact that cyber is a team sport. It's not about the star player. It's about getting as many diverse views looking at the same problem because the newest member of the team with the, the, the least experience could come up with a novel approach that some of the old sweats, some of the old campaigners haven't seen or heard of before because we are moving in a technologically advanced age. So there are favoured standards, and, and the NIST model is, is very popular in uh, financial services because it lends itself to that operational resilience uh, sort of uh, focus. But at the same time, that itself is just a framework that's populated by data which can be derived from underlying standards. So you can use ISO 27001 to populate it, uh, as well as some of the other international standards. So I guess you can adopt a pick-and-mix approach to the information that you seek to populate that table with. But what is interesting is now that cyber is very much a boardroom issue, you are providing decision support analysis in an easily digestible form to people that need to make strategic decisions. So taking that technical nuance and delivering it at a strategic, uh, if you like, uh, not anodyne, but more polished uh, sort of form is is quite a difficult feat and I think cyber uh, management information cyber metrics is is been a key point of discussion in the industry that that I don't think anybody has yet cracked to the full satisfaction of their stakeholders. You mentioned the pick and mix approach is there one thing that you should be mindful of? I think the one thing I always keep in mind is the initiative rests with the adversary and you know uh, Green can be a beguiling colour, but it can give you a false sense of security. So thinking that you've you know, populated your standard to the highest standards possible or at least reach compliance standards um, is, is, a, is a quick way to become complacent and a quick way to become vulnerable. But there's no doubt about it that cyber hygiene, the, the very boring and, and tedious uh, yet absolutely fundamental um, maintenance of uh, your operating systems, your protocols, your uh, your network is is absolutely fundamental to what we do, and arguably the way investment has ebbed and flowed between outsourcing and insourcing IT 
has been to the detriment of cyber hygiene. And of course now we're seeing the the uptake of cloud services which uh, in theory offer you a higher level of cyber hygiene that you can achieve in your own. But as, as we're all being told, you still remain responsible and accountable for that uh, infrastructure. So the way the SLAs and the uh, reporting coming out of that cloud provider uh, needs to be regulatory friendly in a highly regulated industry like financial services remains, I think, a challenge uh, that people are still grappling with, but people recognise that the flexibility and agility of cloud computing is is a, is a quick way to increase the agility of business, particularly in financial services, which has a considerable IT legacy issue. Of course, no matter which way you look at it, people are still part of the equation. What's the best way to training staff, in your opinion? So I think the uh, standard qualifications or the ones that are very popular, such as CISP, CISM, uh, C-RISC, are, are really good ways uh, of achieving a breadth of knowledge uh, and to use CISP's own quote it's a, a mile wide and an inch deep but it does give you a framework to to look further into key aspects the human aspect is really interesting because it's it's not necessarily about knowledge or educational learning it's about the ability to be a critical thinker determined in pursuing down those missing bits of information evaluating uh, partial uh, information and making judgments in the absence of information it's the same qualities that good employers are looking for from good employees across the piece you know the same qualities they're looking in leadership in all forms uh, and i think the view that cyber is purely a technical discipline has long been uh, overshadowed by the operational reality that actually there is a much uh, stronger role for strategic leadership in cyber as it becomes fundamental to digital enterprise uh, and digital societies and that the ability to take complexity and provide as i said strategic decision support analysis is becoming fundamental to the role at a senior leadership level and at the same time you're managing and leading a team of technical experts that you must give continuous professional development for to keep them engaged um, and a, inevitably a, a breadth of experience that allows them to step into a gap when gaps occur, either through absence or illness or, or simply that people move on in their careers. So I think cyber is a, an exciting career choice for uh, anybody in the marketplace, whether there be somebody having a second career or somebody stepping out of full-time education for the first time and thinking... I want an intellectually stimulating and rewarding role uh, that I gain personal satisfaction from. I think cyber is, is in a good place at the moment in terms of its attractiveness to other people. Do you think building a cyber-resilient organisation, it's a matter of revolution or evolution? Can this evolve over time slowly? I think it can be both depending on who you are. So if you're a fintech startup unencumbered by legacy... Uh, with a really whizzy idea that is commercially attractive, you can be pretty agile uh, from the outset using cloud-based computing, um, rapidly adopting sort of the latest standards and the latest uh, methodologies to, to build your cyber resilient organisation. Clearly, if you're 
uh, a long-time incumbent in the marketplace with considerable volume, it can only be evolution because you've got to take the whole organisation with you. You've got to navigate um, the consequences of technical debt rather than technical debt itself. Uh, And you've got to provide a level of service to both your users and the customers that is comparable with those fintech startups. So um, I think... It depends on where you are, which way you can approach the subject. But do you think we can keep up with the, the pace of the threats? Well, that is a completely different story, isn't it? Um, so is uh, cyber threats outstripping the ability of cyber defence to you know, defend those key operational processes or digital assets? And I, I would suggest that you could characterise that in three ways. Um, capability, uh, intrusive, I can get into your system disruptive i can muck around with your data and i think as the not pettier attack uh, from the ukraine albeit launched on them from other sources uh, has demonstrated that disruptive is is now where we are at in terms of the capability intent it could be ideological i'm a hacktivist and i want to protest in some way against your corporation uh, criminological i'm a organized crime gang or even somebody who's working alone with commoditized kits and then geopolitical. I'm a state-enabled, state-sponsored, acted, state-motivated in some way, and I've been instructed to complete a particular tasking or made an offer I can't refuse by somebody that works for the, my local government to complete taskings on their behalf. Then I suppose in terms of opportunity, a digital society allows you not only to strike IT now, uh, the, the process of communicating with each other, but operational technology is that, that you know, we are using... Uh, information technology to conduct operational processes somebody in heavy manufacturing has clearly got robotics on the on the production line but they've also got new designs in their r&d department but their accounts department needs to speak to the dealers as well and and i think that that model of it ot and r&d uh, for me is, is a good way to, to characterize how uh, business operates is that day to day we need to talk to each other if, if my corporate phone goes down i lose all my address lists in it and i'm reduced to who's ever on my whatsapp uh, and that that itself can be a major friction a major impediment for to doing our job just imagine if everybody lost their personal electronic device uh, so and in terms of if you like intellectual property clearly as we're seeing with uh, the loss of some intellectual property again in the automotive industry you don't want to lose your next car design and find out that it's being produced before you can produce it in perhaps the Far East, shall we say. But I'm sure that's not the only IP that's being lost. And we know that some state-motivated actors are not just uh, targeting political and military entities, they're targeting commercial entities to achieve that competitive advantage uh, in a way that seems culturally unreal to us but is very much part of everyday life in the far east you know in some places the far east where copyright is is really a uh, an alien concept are there any tactics that haven't worked for you or you've you've found that actually mm, i don't think i'll repeat that or that doesn't work with people i think a single message and a single voice uh, and a single brand is is probably uh, my biggest takeaway is that uh, the workforce is as, as diverse as society. So if I feel I'm de- delivering a you know, compelling and capable message, I should probably trial that on somebody that's a few years younger with me, a different gender to me, a different background to me, to make sure that they understand the essential elements of information I'm trying to 
uh, portray to them and that there is things that they can take away in action, not just to make their corporate life more secure, but their personal life more secure. I think the demarcation between the private individual and the corporate employee is much more blurred than it ever was. You know, when I log on to my corporate device, I'm clearly a corporate individual in, in a corporate setting. But when I log on through my VDI at home onto my corporate network because I've got an hour in the evening just after the children go to sleep and I've got some deadlines to complete tomorrow, it's much, much more nebulous. So when I have an identity theft issue and I'm worried that I've lost my details, as one of our employees had not so long ago, you know, who should they be able to turn to? Well, I think they should be able to turn to me and say, can you help me out here? Because that's a loss of productivity from that individual. It affects their morale. You know, it clearly becomes a, a point of conversation in the, in the group and they need support. And sometimes you're best place to give that support. And it's a tactical issue for you in terms of what you've got to deliver. But for them, it's a really significant event in their lives. Uh, and we all need support when there's really significant events in our lives. How do you go about advising the board when it comes to the budget and where they should put their money in, in this cyber-resilient framework? So prioritisation of resources is, is, a, is a key issue and uh, there is a tendency to perhaps be reactive to tactical events without having a clear strategic direction. Um, and again, I suppose being able to prioritise on your core operational processes, the essential services that support it and the single points of failure that you've identified is... is is almost uh, an industrial way of looking at it. But you do have to think wider than just that because of the, you know, the effects of, of, of attacks on people that you need to, to keep that process going. I think you know, getting your message across the board is, is a demanding skill set and it's as demanding as getting the message across to individual employees. Everybody has different experience and, and different views. And everybody, uh, if they don't read the Financial Times, they definitely read the Metro. Uh, and it's usually a conversation sparked by the Metro in the morning that will set an inquiry, a, a well-meaning inquiry, as to what does this mean for us and how does it work. I think the most difficult message to pass to any uh, key leadership group um, is that there is no such thing as totally secure and that, again, the initiative rests with the adversary. You hear the term um, psychologically resilient being bandied around. Do you think psychology comes into a cyber-resilient network or educating people? It's a really... I think psychology comes into everything, doesn't it? Because the view that there is just one view of a way of looking at a problem and a solution is, is you know, is, is very blinkered in my view. I think there's always something to learn from people around you and, again... Competing priorities in busy days means that operations staff will have a different view to perhaps cybersecurity people will. Com staff will have a different view. So again, I think you know, a, a sort of a mobilisation of resources and talent across uh, an organisation is is the best way to create a resilient organisation. And I guess you know, resilient becomes almost. Uh, identical with technology and I don't mean it like that I mean sometimes the resilience can rest in the individual behaviours and culture of the organisation itself uh, the classic well that's how we do business around here and, and the oil industry is a good example of this where their safety culture is so inherent to them that apparently I've never been but apparently if you dash up the stairs in the middle of the stairs in BP or Shell they'll say no no we, we hold the banister here you know we because 
what safety means in the oil industry is absolutely everything. Nobody wants a Piper Alpha issue, so they're very uh, the culture there is is safety first, and I think the culture in corporates going forward will be cyber first, uh, so that when projects are initiated, one of the first people, things that people will say, right, this is what we're trying to achieve in terms of ends, ways, means. How do we do this securely? Where can we take risk? Where can we not take risk? And how are we going to manage those risks? And the view that all risks can be turned to green is, again, I think, uh, not grounded in operational reality today, that some of those risks will always remain out of appetite. And then there's the inevitable piece, well, if they're always going to be out of appetite, when it happens, how do we respond and recover from that event? A big thank you to Craig, and hope you found the interview useful. A big thank you to Craig, and hope you found the interview useful. Now for our cyber tip of the week. Don't post holiday pictures on social media when you're on holiday. Save them for when you're back. Likewise, don't advertise the fact that you're away from home anywhere. You've been warned here, as tempting as it may be to decorate your Instagram feed in real time, it pays to be cautious. That's all we have time for. Tweet us your podcast topic suggestions, please, at Tice News. And don't forget to join us next week for more scintillating cybersecurity discussion. Bye for now. <laughs>